Welcome to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Now here's your Lighthouse Council host. Hello, welcome to The Beacon Podcast, your connection to nonprofit success. I'm Margaret Gardner, your host for today's discussion with copywriting guru, Tom Ahern. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, Margaret. It is my pleasure. Tom is one of the most well-known and respected fundraising copywriters in the country, if not the world, and has been raising money for myriad causes for more years than he probably wants to say. But today's podcast isn't about Tom. Rather, it's about Simone Joyo, his wife of 37 years, who passed away on May 2nd, 2021. Definitely, it was a painful loss, not only for her friends and her family, but also to the nonprofit fundraising sector. Simone was a powerhouse, to be sure. She was beloved, respected, passionate, delightful, insightful, and a fundraising force of nature. Her birthday is July 23rd, so Tom has graciously agreed to spend some time sharing what we're calling Golden Nuggets, Simone Joyo's Wisest Words of Wisdom. So without further ado, Tom, I will turn things over to you so you could tell us a little more about Simone and share some of her insights with us. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much, Margaret. This is a real pleasure. You know, it's been over a year, and at first it's just traumatic to lose somebody that you have had a partnership with, a close partnership with for 37 years. But I'm beginning to get from the grief part into the gratitude part of, well, I had 37 years and uh, lucky me. So I went down to Smun's office. We, we never had children. We did build a house there for around two home offices. We used to be in the same office, but uh, Smun cursed too much. So I, I had to have my own office. And her office was just papered with things that came in that she thought were worth remembering. And so I I pulled a few off the shelves. For instance, uh, here's one. Friends don't let friends plot to dismantle the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy alone. (laughs) 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 And that was her, those were her politics. There's a cartoon she had. She was part of the president's circle. She was actually the uh, chair for many years with Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. And the cartoon has uh, two familiar figures, uh, a Wonder Woman and Catwoman. And the caption is, fighting supervillains is a cinch. Fighting misogyny is the real challenge. Mm. And, uh, and it went on from there. Something would come in. Here's another little a post-it note from her office. Our brains are Velcro for negativity, but Teflon for positive information. And that was from a guy named Rick Hansen, who's a guru. She grew up in a different household than most people in America. Her dad was French. He um, came to the U.S. and taught as a professor at Michigan State University He was obviously multilingual, but very much multicultural, too. And the kids learned at the dinner table, the breakfast table, that people all over the world were different. And Simone absorbed that to a very deep degree. And she would go out into the world talking about all sorts of things that in the sometimes overly polite atmosphere of fundraising – 
particularly conferences and so forth, so not these days so much, but in the older days, uh, she would get up in front of people and say things like, and this is, this is a quote, hello, my name is Simone Joyeau. I am white, heterosexual, well-educated, and affluent. Those are all privileges. The only thing that is not that much of a privilege is being a female because being a female in pretty much every place on earth is a disadvantage and should stop and then get into her presentation. And, you know, people reacted, either they didn't react at all or they reacted in one of two ways. The negative reaction was, I didn't come here to hear that kind of stuff. I came to learn about fundraising. Well, that was not going to ever happen with Simone. She came fully packed with her political opinions. And then the other way that people reacted was to come up and hug her. And she has a quote here of one of those people saying, uh, can I hug you for what you just said? Because I can't marry a woman I love. And, you know, so, so forth. This was her thing, very much her thing. Her favorite story, she founded something, Margaret, called the Women's Fund of Rhode Island. And the purpose of that Women's Fund was to get more females elected to statewide office. And she learned that idea from the people in Arizona. She was consulting with them. And she came back to our state, Rhode Island, and went into the Community Foundation and said, will you help with this? And the Community Foundation put $3 million into her hands and said, let's see what what you can come up with. So she put together a board that was made up of every powerful, politically connected female that she could get her hands on in the state of Rhode Island. And one of their first questions, first board meeting question comes up, do we let the boys in? Could they be on the board? And the answer universally around the table was no, it's not their turn, essentially. And in in truth, what happened to the women's fund? Um, it had a kind of a dip in terms of its uh, in terms of its effectiveness, and that happened when they did bring males onto the board. However, in the early days, and now back because they're back and they're strong, women's fund of Rhode Island. She would recite this story, and it's the 24 hours before you were born story, as told by Warren Buffett from a book by John Rawls from 1971, A Theory of Justice, and then she modified it. So I have heard her say this a thousand times, and she recites it. Let's say it was 24 hours before you were born, and a genie appeared and said, what I'm going to do is let you set the rules of the society into which you will be born. You can set the economic rules, the social rules, whatever rules you set will apply during your lifetime and your children's lifetimes and even the lifetimes of your grandchildren. Well, you say, okay, that's great. I get to define what kind of world I want to live in, but you're also smart. So you ask, what's the catch? And the genie says, well, here's the catch. You don't know if you're going to be born poor or rich, of color or white, female or male, or some other sexual identity. Now, 
What rules do you want? So Simon had a favorite quote, a favorite way of describing what she calls fund development, basically fundraising, right? This is how she explains it. And it, it, it's a quote from someone else, quote unquote, philanthropy means voluntary action for the common good. And she clung to that over the years because you have a lot of tides and currents swirling around going, fundraising, what is this? And philanthropy, what is this? And what does it really mean? And so forth. But she settled on this as the thing that mattered. And it came from someone named uh, Robert Payton. And fund development is the essential partner of philanthropy. So fund development makes philanthropy possible by bringing together a particular cause and donors and prospects that are willing to invest in the cause. The goal is to acquire donors of time and money who stay with the charity over time. And this is accomplished through the process of relationship building. So does it get more complicated than that? Well, yeah, it can. But in her mind, this was the foundation that we built our fundraising upon. Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? She was big into, Margaret, she was big into questions. One of the things that she liked doing most was teaching at St. Mary's University out in Minnesota. And she would just drill her classes. They were all mid-level kind of uh, career-oriented fundraisers on asking what she called, um, what did she call them? One of the things Simone loved most for a couple of decades was to go each July out to Minnesota, to St. Mary's University, and she would teach a summer class there for mid-level, mid-career fundraisers who came in from all over the world, or all over the U.S. and Canada, I should say. And uh, they were there to kind of go to the next level. And one of the things she just harped on all the time were what she called cage-rattling questions. And so questions became a basic... Uh, how you kept a conversation with a prospect, for instance, going and alive and uh, productive for both sides. So instead of going in and, you know, kind of um, talking, you were you were doing a lot of listening with the occasional prompt. And so uh, here are some of the questions. Here are five questions that she used. Why did you first give to our organization? And that actually comes from a UK consultant named Richard Radcliffe. And he's done focus groups with over, I think he said last time, 25,000 different donors asking them various things. But he said, the best question I ever asked or ever came up with is why did you first give to our organization? Because it takes people back to a moment, that moment when they, they decided to say yes. And that moment is always really, really personal. Now, maybe completely unexpected why they did that first gift, but it is very personal in every case. Another question, what interests you most about our organization? These are things just to get the ball rolling. Why is our organization uh, interesting to you? 
what are the most critical results you expect our organization to produce? And, and why does this cause matter to you? These, these kinds of questions were, they're kind of the basics for having a conversation with a prospect or somebody who's already a warm donor. Other kinds of questions, though, were a little more, they're open-ended, for one thing, which they have to be, and they're more interesting. If one of them, for instance, if you had a family slogan, what would it be? If you could change the world, what would you do? and so forth. And those questions, not the ones that were specifically about the organization and why someone gave, but those last couple of questions, how do they help? How do they increase engagement, would you say, with someone who was a donor or a potential donor? Well, most donors don't feel they're listened to. And there's a reason, many reasons probably uh, for that, because a, nobody asks them their opinion unless they're a major donor. Uh, major donors get a different level of attention than the rest of your donor so-called pyramid. And one of the things that's been being done over the last couple of decades is moving the behaviors, the, the, the kind of things that major donors do, downstream into um, your general communications work with the bulk of your donors. And that would include doing surveys and, and so forth. So surveys have been heavily researched in Australia, the UK, the US, uh, Canada, and they are proving to be one of the more useful ways to increase giving. Even at the, for lack of a better word, sort of the average level of donor as opposed to the major, the major donors. Yeah, the average. Uh, yeah, we don't have a good term for that. Now. We we know what a major donor is. We just don't know what the other kind of donor is. And the the evidence, the statistical evidence, is quite clear that over fifty, over sixty percent of tomorrow's major donors start with what you might call an average gift. And what is an average gift in the U.S.? Across all charities, according to Blackbaud most recently, the average gift is about 20 bucks. So do you go, oh, that's just 20 bucks. That's terrible. No, you go, oh, that's 20 bucks. That could be tomorrow's million dollar donor. And it could. And that's good research too. So what you're looking for here is connection. And why are they connecting to you? One of the reasons is, I mean, it's going to be so personal to them. I was working with a big charity in the last couple of years with the 2016 administration that was elected to the White House and had anti-immigrant policies and rhetoric. The people, though this was a charity that benefited refugees, the people were giving to it, turned out when we actually researched them, not just because it was a good cause and they were doing fabulous work, but because they were protesting the people in the White House at that time who had anti-immigrant. So when they just translated that into, well, if you're anti-immigrant, but I'm not, I'm going to support refugees. That would not have been discovered without some kind of research being done. Thank you all for listening to my ramblings. I want you to know that Simone's website is alive. She posted a vast 
amount of material there for all sorts of things. I mean, there is also her Simone Uncensored blog, but in which I've been quoting from a little bit. But it, also there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of lots of governance uh, things that are useful to any charity. That was her core specialty was board governance. And so it's worth um, taking a peek into her what's called a learning center. You'll find a tab there called that and just see what's there. You, it, it will save you potentially loads of work. Oh, Tom, thank you. That's some great advice. And I hope everyone takes it and checks out the website and, and spend some time looking through it. Tom, it was really great to have you here and um, to hear some more insights about Simone and, and hear some of her stories. We really do appreciate that. And I know that many of our listeners will be very appreciative of, of your time with us. So thank you again. Uh, and for those of you listening, thanks for joining us. Uh, once again, I'm Margaret Gardner, and we will see you next time on The Beacon Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Beacon, your connection to nonprofit success. Tune in every week for nonprofit topics with special guest interviews. Suggest future topics and learn more about upcoming podcast and guest at lighthousecouncil.com.